maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. On this episode of Awesome Etiquette, we'll answer your questions on radio silence in the communication age, getting comfortable with an overly generous friend, how to say no to sales parties, prepping your parents politely for meeting your significant other, and a classic, saying no thank you to your future mother-in-law. All that plus a postscript segment on yoga class etiquette coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning from the Emily Post Institute. Oh boy, there was one of those like trending stories that we got called about. We did. It was an etiquette headline. There was a debacle at a diner in Maine. Um, I think it was a couple weeks ago. It's starting to be a little bit in the past now. Right, right. Um, But the family was on vacation. They stopped to get something to eat. The child is fussing and crying loudly. It gets to the point where the owner actually screamed at the child. But then, living in the modern age that we do, yay technology, the parents blast the restaurant online and the restaurant owner fires back. And then there are tons of comments defending both the restaurant owner and the parents. So two days later, it's the first story on the Today Show. It's the first story on the Today Show. And we actually did an interview um, with the AP on it. And it was, I actually love the way that interview came out. They t- they took three etiquette experts and they kind of went through the points of contention and then had each of our, mm-hmm. our answers in response. Lots to talk about. I was really glad that we were in good company. I mean, we all the experts agreed on the same points. And so I think that was kind of really nice because no matter what, This was failure left, right, and center. I was going to say, let's start to break it down. What what, what were some of those points? So I think that some of the points that came up were that, um, number one, is it okay to bring children to restaurants? And Dan and I are always going to say, of course it is. It's great practice. Even um, mostly family restaurants are good for very young children. But as Mm -hmm. your kids get a little bit older and they can really sit through a 45-minute or hour-long meal – hour and a half long meal, finer dining, it's appropriate to bring a child that you can trust their behavior. Mm -hmm. It's also important to know when to leave when that behavior goes wrong. (laughs) Absolutely. And and I'll confess, I think I've met a bit the copy machine. I heard you doing some of this interview. (laughs) And the answer that I really liked hearing was the the reporter was really trying to nail you down saying, "Well, well, how old? Can oh, is right. a child before you can bring them out, or what, what are they the wanted, they always what are the lines? Numbers, give me, give me yeah. the age ranges in which it's and the appropriate. Time limit. And, What's the time limit of screaming? <laughs> and I really liked your answer. You acknowledge, like I, I, I can understand your desire to have those kinds of hard lines, and I just can't give them to you because it really is about knowing your child, knowing what's reasonable to expect of your child, and right. you have to know what those expectations are. And one of them is, can your child maintain their attention for? 15 minutes, for a half hour, for an hour. How long is service at this particular restaurant? And and is it a reasonable expectation? What about all the distractions? It's a new environment. Is your child going to be able to handle this? And when we were describing this scenario, I I heard accounts that this child was screaming for 20 minutes. I heard accounts that it was 30. I heard accounts that it was over 40 minutes that this child was screaming in the restaurant. And we don't know what it is, what it wasn't. The mother said it was 10. The restaurant owner said it was 40. You're like, it was probably somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. 
between mm-hmm. the two. And let's face it, any time a child is screaming, it's going to seem and feel like longer than it actually ever is. Yep. But regardless, the breakdown of what happened was that I believe the, the restaurant owner did speak to them at one point. And then when it kept going and they just didn't leave, it was that point where she screamed at the child, which we're never— She blew up. Yeah, Lost we're control. never going to advocate that. That's never an okay behavior. <laughs> but what I personally come down on the side of is if, you're, if your child is screaming and crying and making a fuss for, I would say, more than 10 to 15 minutes. And typically what the restaurant should do is come over and say, is there anything we could do to help? Mm-hmm. You know, generally restaurants, I've, I worked in the restaurant industry. There's some kind, Dan's worked in the restaurant industry. There's some kind of food you can get to them if it's hunger that's the problem. Um, there's something like often even just giving them a pen and mm-hmm. a pad of order taking paper, you know, for the kid to draw on something like that. We live in an age where almost everybody has a smartphone or something that, you know, I hate saying turn to it, but turn to it. Use these devices to distract your child. If none of those distractions are working, you've probably spent a good five to 15 minutes working on it. It's not working. You have to take your kid outside. Mm-hmm. Dan, what was the reasoning that the mother gave for not taking the kid outside? Again, re- accounts stay. <laughs> yeah. She said it was raining outside. Didn't yeah. want to go outside with a with a kid when it was raining. And they were on vacation, so they don't know the town. Where can I go? I'm sorry. I just I can't get behind that excuse. That re- I will say I can't get behind that reasoning mm-hmm. because Smart. I'm sure as a child when it was raining, my parents took me out if I was misbehaving. And you just you go find an awning. You get a little wet maybe, but you take your child out to a different environment. You try to work with them. You use the transportation you came with to go back to the hotel, go back to somewhere. Your kid is not in a place right now where they can handle being in the public sphere well. And so it's time to remove them from that situation. And it's a bummer. It is not what you want to have to do. You're hungry. You want those pancakes. Like, (laughs) I get it. But you have to understand the responsibility that you do have to the people around you. There's an idea that you brought up last week, a a proportionality of response concept. And as the situation gets worse, as this screaming goes on, as it becomes more and more of an imposition on the other people, I think your response has to escalate. And you start with those first measures. You try a little food. You try a coloring book. You try the iPad coloring book. (laughs) Um, Next step, you what is it going to take to remove yourself from the situation? The yeah. same way you, you were coming up with a scaled and proportional response from the restaurant. Is there something we can do? Can we – maybe there's a point at which you say, you know, this really seems problematic. Can we offer to pack your meal for you? Could we yeah. offer you a free meal if you can't stay with us? Service right. is still going to be another 10 minutes. Yeah. Don't worry if you need to leave. That We understand. Yeah. There, 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 I think there's a proportionality in the response and what – I think what's so dramatic and catching about this story is that it went from zero to 120 in a matter of, of apparently 20 40 minutes. minutes. Yeah, 20, 40 minutes. Yeah. Um, the hysteria, the, the yelling match that I'm imagining between restaurant owner and parents Two-year-old. That, that then gets transported into social media where it's amplified oh and dramatically goodness. amplified. And oh my goodness, this is yeah. such a I mean, parents feel really strongly about their kids and being told about parenting and even more strongly about people disciplining their 
their children. Yeah. And it's a piece of advice that we give often is to be really careful. I was editing that video recently about you giving this piece of advice <laughs> about not disciplining other people's children. And yeah. um, this is one of the reasons people feel really strongly about it. And you can talk to another parent about what's going on, what's problematic, what's wrong. You can address the behavior in the moment. But the idea of imposing a discipline and when you start yelling at someone else's child, that feels like that child's being disciplined by someone Absolutely. else. Absolutely. It's not their place. It's their place to offer help. It's their place to, you know, say as the restaurant, you know, we've we've hit the point where this is unfortunately uncomfortable for other customers and I, I need to be protecting their enjoyment of their time here too. So I would love to. I love Dan's suggestion. I'd love to pack up your food to go for you. The meal's on us. But the idea is do everything you can to get them out of the restaurant and on their way in a gentle and understanding method or, or way. Absolutely. Then there's a point of etiquette we talk about all the time that's look for someone withstanding. Yes. And theoretically, the owner of this establishment that's is the, the person withstanding. And with that standing comes responsibility to mm-hmm. handle it well. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> because you're the person that, that, that Lizzie and I would be advising people to look for to address a situation of someone at the table sitting next to you is screaming and screaming yeah. and it's really problematic. The, the advice that we would give someone is find the manager, a the server owner. or a manager or an owner to address it and deal with it. So in some ways that there's an, an extra breach of etiquette in that person Absolutely. not playing their role well. Unfortunately, that was in response to another breach of etiquette, the the, the failure to really um, identify what's reasonable for the kid and, and to take the child away when that becomes problematic. So two wrongs certainly didn't make a right in this case. No, they didn't. But I have a feeling that we have some wonderful questions that we have coming up that hopefully we can find some some right answers to and offer. Ho- and hopefully there will be a, a little bit of patience in here somewhere that might help some of our, our listeners in the future, although I don't think anybody out there listening to this podcast would find themselves in this particular situation. Probably not. <laughs> Let's hope not. I hope not. Oh, what do you think? Should we get to some questions? Let's do it. All right. You're right. There's so much to learn how to do. Sure, there's a lot to learn, but it's worth it. And learning is easy. One way is by watching others. On each and every episode of Awesome Etiquette, we take your questions on how to behave. This question has to do with radio silence in the dating world. Our abbreviated story. Twelve years after a divorce, Daisy finds herself comfortable being single, but enjoys dating as well. She meets a gentleman through mutual friends, and at a dinner party, they exchange numbers and eventually go on a few dates. After a few months of very enjoyable communication, he goes radio silent. More time passes, and he reaches out again, apologizing. Daisy understands, but wants to guard herself and has a question about his behavior. My date's initial radio silence behavior seems to be as commonplace today as not responding to an RSVP request. Radio silence from people who are or were corresponding via text, email, phone is hurtful, rude, and leaves this big question mark hanging in the air. Yet it seems to have snuck into the common dating ritual. What are we supposed to do? How do we respond? You can imagine it gets pretty frustrating in trying to develop friendships and maybe more, always thinking one day they will evaporate. So why invest my time and feelings? Best wishes, Daisy. Oh, I I can understand. I know I can you too. can understand <laughs> that this is, you know, even not just in the dating world, but in the friendship world, radio silence is 
a big problem. I'm currently doing it to someone right now, and I really it's on my mind. I have to respond. I have to figure out if I'm going to say yes to grabbing a drink after work tonight or not Mm -hmm. with my friend who I haven't seen in forever, but I just I keep forgetting. So it's like I'm remembering it at times when I am recording the podcast and cannot respond. Mm -hmm. I am not remembering at times when I am just, you know, sitting on my lunch break eating my tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) Well, so in this case, that's just about complexity. Just it, there's enough things going on. It's simply uh, slipping your mind. That sounds so bad, though. I don't like the excuse of busy. Sure. But, but it's different than I don't want to say yes. yes or no. Yeah. So I'm scared to say no. Yes. And that's another problem that I think leads to this kind of behavior. Exactly. And I think that the the radio silence, everything that Daisy said is true. Um, it's hurtful and rude and it leaves a big question mark. Sure and does. it's so frustrating. And this isn't just because we now have phones where we can text or Facebook where we can message. It's because this has been happening for a long time. People used to call and leave a message on an answering machine and they wouldn't ever hear back from someone. And it does it, – it, it strikes at a growing problem of people not being willing to take ownership of a response, mm-hmm. of just simply being able to respond. And that is rude. It absolutely is. And the rudeness then creates stress. It creates worry. Um, I know the times where I've been in a position like Daisy where I had someone who I was really interested in and all of a sudden they kind of disappear. It, it's hurtful. It, it's really hurtful. And there's nothing you can do because if you start texting and, well, where are you? Why are you? Why haven't you responded? You become the crazy person. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's <laughs> – it gets really awkward really fast. So what do you think when you get radio silence? What do you think is is the way to handle it? It's it's silly, but if you get into the details of it, it's the last communication that often really matters. Mm-hmm. So um, I like to think about what's been said last. Mm-hmm. And I think it's perfectly OK to, to, to step up and yeah. send a note, send a message. But if you've been the last one to speak the second time, the third time, there, there, there's a point at which – the last is the last. And and maybe maybe you give yourself a three strikes yeah. kind of situation or to keep yourself from doing that, that chasing your your tail and it starts to feel like a loop. Yeah. I'm reminded of an old expression. I'm gonna get it get it wrong, but it's something like that the, there's nothing I, I can tolerate someone's dislike or someone's um, even hate, but Rejection, indifference. Yeah is so painful, is so yeah. – is can be crushing. That silence feels <laughs> like indifference. And it's not always. And just where you started, you're saying this is a person I'm, I'm, I keep meaning to talk to them. Yeah. And the, the, the level of offense that someone can feel based on that level of disengagement is really something to be aware of because it can feel so hurtful and it's not always intended to be that way. Right. But, so, you, but the person on the other end doesn't know that. Like, they don't. It's about so that. So a little more about Daisy's situation. The person that she was involved with, um, he, he went through a number of difficult family-related issues that really had his focus. And I mean, I remember losing two family members within a month of each other. I was horrible about even getting back to people and, and making plans. And it was very difficult for me this spring to do those kinds of things. And Daisy was very understanding of the fact that he went through a difficult time and that made it hard. But I like the fact that she's also protecting herself by kind of saying, it's okay. I understand, but I'm not sure I'm willing to engage further at this point in time. Maybe some conversation soar and we can test the waters that way. But right now, what what's happened to her mm-hmm. is that her trust with this person has been broken. 
And you have relationships. All relationships are built on trust. This is what Dan teaches in our business etiquette seminars all the time. It's what I help write in the e-learning program that we have. It's all based on trust. And so building that trust back takes two things. It takes the consistency of the person who broke the trust to begin with. And it takes the willingness of the person who was Mm -hmm. affected by the broken trust, you know. And those two things have to be willing to to come together and really try on the same path to make it work in order for that to become a bad situation that turned good. Yeah. And that <laughs> No, and it's the subtlety and it's the dance of a good relationship and it's why a good relationship is such a special thing. Yeah. It's such a remarkably special thing because it's not always just about the capacity of each party to, to, to interact and relate, but their willingness and, and, and whether it actually happens. And it, it's something everyone's looking for in their life. <laughs> so Daisy asks, what are we supposed to do? I think you have to trust. I mean, you hear us say this all the time, but you have to trust your gut. Are you willing to try again with the knowing that, that this person might hurt your feelings, that they might go radio silent on you again? Are you willing to um, to engage? And that's something only you, Daisy, will know. How do we respond? I think so far the responses that you had written to us about, which we didn't read all of them on air, but they were things like, it, it, you know, I understand um, and I hope you're doing well. Those are great responses to start with if you want to ask him a question, if you want to engage and try to say maybe we can catch up sometime. That's wonderful, but it's up to you to choose whether how far you engage. If you're not going to engage, I think it's perfectly okay to tell the person why. Um, mm-hmm. You know, dear John, I really loved our communications. I loved getting to know you. Unfortunately, it was pretty hurtful for me when you disappeared. I would have loved to at least known that you were going to disappear and know why as opposed to not I can handle rejection. I can handle life gets busy. But silence was not something I wanted to have to handle because it left too many questions in the air. I'm not willing to move forward with you, but I wish you well. And I hope that things go great in the future for you. You know, that's a little redundant at the end. But something like that, I think, is fine. But you're the only person who's going to know which which path of those two that you can choose. We wish you the best of luck moving forward, whatever choice you make. Um, And it sounds like you're in really good shape. Our next question deals with being too generous. Can you be too generous? And how it feels when you're the one receiving that generosity. Dear Dan and Lizzie, I'm an avid podcast listener and wanted to thank you for the work you guys do. I love the way you approach modern etiquette as being grounded in the same values as classic etiquette and that the right way is the way that makes people feel welcome. I have an issue that's been troubling me. One of my wife's oldest friends is generous to a fault. I have developed a friendship with her on my own and can tell you that she is one of the most genuinely thoughtful, funny, and amazing people I know, which shouldn't be a problem, right? Having a kind, thoughtful friend? The dilemma is this. At times, she can be so generous, especially financially, that it feels like too much and can make us deeply uncomfortable. Some examples? Regularly picking up the check for all three of us, despite our protests, by inventing any excuse. Giving extravagant birthday and holiday gifts that are often five times more expensive than any gift we would get from another friend or that we could afford to give her. At our recent wedding, we opened her card to find a check from her for $1,000 on top of another gift she had already given. 
I feel like she's always buying. She's always giving. I should say that she does relatively well professional, but she's not in the top 1%. Neither are we. We like to be there for our friends, offering help when they are in need and trying to keep in mind and acknowledge the things that are important to them. We're not cheap, and we try to give thoughtful gifts and regularly host this friend in our home, but we are not of unlimited means and have to live a bit frugally. This friend is going through a very difficult personal time, which we have tried our best to support her through. I don't think she has a quid pro quo motive giving these gifts. The problem, Lizzie and Dan, is that we're busy and can't always buy extravagant gifts. We can feel very guilty that we do not match her level of generosity. It can make me stressed out spending time with her worrying about what she is going to pay for next or if I'm doing enough to support the friendship. How do we approach this? I don't want to say your gift is too nice. I cannot take it, which seems to offend her. But honestly, we don't want to cash this wedding gift check. Any advice? Thanks so much. Hi, friendship bar. I think this is a great question because it's a question of excellence. (laughs) (laughs) Frankly, I love the care and the thoughtfulness that um, our our reader is approaching the high friendship bar. Totally. They want this relationship to be a good one, a sincere one. They don't want to feel like they're taking advantage of someone. And my advice there is that you you can not take advantage of someone by not taking advantage of them. And I think you can trust yourself to be a good person and to do that. And how do you do that exactly? Well, if you're concerned about them paying for dinner, invite them to have dinner at your house. Um, there are little things that you can start to do to, to direct the friendship and really emphasize the social interaction that's clearly important to both of you that she – your friend clearly feels very close to you totally, um, and feels really comfortable expressing that closeness. And it's clear that, that you feel really close to her also by the level of care with which you're approaching this relationship and your concern that, that you don't end up in a situation where you're taking advantage of or even feel like you are yourself. If you did want to have a talk with someone about – the amount of a gift that, that – that, or the number of gifts that you're receiving from them or, or the level a perceived – yeah. Exactly, a perceived discrepancy in, in the way that you're both able to participate in the friendship. That's a, a conversation that I think you'd have to approach with a lot of tact and a lot of care. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of separating that or removing that from a particular incident or event is probably Important. a smart idea. But I, I don't even necessarily know if you need to go that far. I think you can get to the place that you want to get of being genuine in your friendship without necessarily needing to raise this as a problem well, in the relationship. I, I think that comes across in the very last paragraph that High Friendship Bar writes, which is, I don't want to say your gift is too nice. I cannot take it, which seems to offend her. So it sounds mm-hmm. like they've tried that and it doesn't work. And when I hear things like that, I really want to encourage you that this um, – Well, a couple things. One is that her finances aren't really any of your business. So whether or not she's in the top 1%, it's not like the top 1% are the only people that can give $1,000 cash gifts. Um, You know, it's up to her to decide what she gives. And I think that, truthfully, the polite thing to do is to accept the gift and to respond by saying thank you. And Mm -hmm. Dan and I, when we pre-talked about this, he said, you know, making that sincere gesture of thank you and and letting someone know that was really thoughtful and you really appreciated it um, is as important as the gift that they've given you, as important as the friendship, and that um, often people who do 
do like to treat their friends, like to give very generously to their friends. And we're talking about physical things, whether it be the gifts or, or money or, you know, taking someone out, paying for things. Those people are well aware of their own budgets, what they can afford. Sometimes what they really just care about is having a nice evening with you. And you know, just as much as your budgets aren't any of her business, um, clearly she knows her own and is just simply willing to take care of you, her friends that she values. To me, the very best thing that you could do in this friendship would be to let go of your own worry and uncomfortable feelings about it. Don't assume, and I don't think you are, that she's trying to buy your friendship. That's just for anybody else out there who might be in this kind of situation and worries about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead... Um, really do what you can. You say that you're very busy right now because of the time you're going through and she's going through a very difficult time. Um, It can take five minutes to write a note and maybe you commit yourself to writing notes to her, letting her know how valued her friendship is and that you want to be there for her. You care about her. You know the particular situation she's going through. You can probably talk a bit more about it. Um, But being there in the ways that support her as a friend, I think is probably something you could never put a price tag on. And that that is a beautiful way to reciprocate this friendship because I don't think it sounds like you're taking advantage of her. I think your intentions in this friendship, you genuinely like her, respect her, find her funny. These are all the things that matter to people who actually do worry about whether people are taking advantage Mm -hmm. of a friendship. So, man, I think you and your wife are in good stead and you can just move forward, cash the check. She wants you to have this. Mm Enjoy that that's a part of the friendship, but you're not you're not friends with her because of that. So don't worry about that being a part of the friendship. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. No, in, in the same way, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want money to, to come between anybody unnecessarily. Yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, worrying about this too much does that. Yeah. And if you get to a situation where there's a gift that really is just too, too much, it's too much, it's over the top, it's not a wedding present and you really just can't accept it, then – you don't. <laughs> and and you're really clear about that and you're you're simple about it. You know, this is this simply too much. We can't accept it. So and hard to do that. <laughs> r- r- really hard to do, but mean it and say it. But I, I really I don't hear about anything here that's crossing that line. It does. And usually you, you want to do that when you start to feel that there are other agendas attached to a present or a gift when yes. you're not really um, trusting the sincerity or the integrity of the giver and you really don't want to put yourself in their debt. And if that's not the way that you're feeling about this. Um, you're in I, good think, I think you're in good shape once yeah. again. So uh, thank you for the thoughtful question. And you've definitely set a high bar for friendship. And I think you're meeting that high bar. Our next question has to do with sales parties. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I have a friend who regularly invites me to home sales parties. In the last three or four months, she's invited me to at least half a dozen of these parties, including a candle party, a makeup party, a clothing party, a jewelry party, a cleaning supplies party, and a purse party. Wow. I'm expected to bring my checkbook and purchase products at these events. I do not want to attend these events. Most of the products are things I do not need and do not want to be pressured to purchase items that I do not want. In addition, although I can afford to participate in such events, the items are usually at a price point much higher than I typically spend for similar items elsewhere. I might be inclined to attend if my friend needed extra income, but that is not the case in this situation. Finally, these parties are not the way I prefer to spend my social time with friends. I work full-time and have small children, so my social time is somewhat limited. I've been declining the invitations, but I'm starting to feel awkward about turning down invite after invite. Should I continue to decline each invitation individually, or should I let her know that I'm not interested in attending these type of events? 
I know that she enjoys hosting these parties and receiving the free product she gets in return. I do not want to discourage her from doing something she loves and that others may enjoy, but I also do not want to join in. What should I do? Yours very truly, Anonymous. Oh, Anonymous, I can completely understand where you're coming from. Sales parties, just for those of you that don't know, are parties where oftentimes um, a host or hostess will um, partner up with a brand and a sales representative will come with product. And that's, as as you've heard from our question asker, um, those products can range. I went to one on garden things. I've been to them on, you know, facial stuff and jewelry and all that kind of stuff. And generally the way that it works is that if enough people at the party Um, purchase things, the hostess actually receives something from the company. And it's usually something they really want. So there's incentive for the host. There's incentive for the customer. And it's a night where women, or I say women, but technically men can throw these parties too. It's a fun way to get together and kind of bring shopping into your own home. But it's not everybody's cup of tea. So to answer your question, Anonymous... You keep doing what you're doing. Keep saying no. You don't have to go to these parties. What I would make an effort to do, however, is make sure that you get together with her socially on your terms. So invite her to coffee. Invite her over to your house for dinner. Invite her to a party that you're throwing that's not a sales party. She will soon get the message that you just don't come to these parties anymore. And that's okay. I don't think you have to have a conversation where you call her up and say, I don't want to come to these parties. They make me uncomfortable. If she asks you, hey, I've noticed that you've stopped coming to all the parties, then you can say, you know, it's really just not something I'm interested in participating in, but I love hanging out with you. Um, And I think that that's really the way you handle it. And um, you don't have to worry about it. It's a relatively low social cost to decline an invitation. Absolutely. If you don't feel bad about doing it and you really don't need to, should not feel bad about doing this. We had a salesperson at Emily Post who used to tell us, I have no trouble making sales. I'm just giving people opportunities. She was so not attached to the sales process. And don't assume that the person who's inviting you to this party is particularly attached. One of the things about it being a sales party means that you can treat it as a sales party. And if you don't want to attend, you don't need to feel bad about declining that particular opportunity. And hopefully she picks up on what you're throwing down and stops inviting you to them. But you can keep your relationship socially. Best of luck to you, Anonymous. I love our next question because it's something everyone who winds up in a relationship probably deals with at some point. Prepping the parents to meet a significant other. Dear Lizzie Post and Dan Post Sunning, next month my boyfriend will come visit my hometown and we'll be meeting my family. My parents are lovely and kind people, but to be frank, their track record of welcoming my brother and my respective girlfriends and boyfriends has been quite dismal. Case in point, at the family dinner in which we met my brother's girlfriend last year, she ended up feeling so uncomfortable that she left the table in distress. I noticed and my brother gave me the cue to go check on her and provide some comfort, and I found her shedding some tears in the restaurant's bathroom. My brother and I did let my parents know that the girlfriend had felt uncomfortable. They felt badly and rendered the relationship in later meetings, but largely dismissed the issue as her being overly sensitive. This was an extreme example affected by somewhat stressful external circumstances. We were just arriving from the airport and my grandmother was in a cheeky mood. But sadly, not an isolated one. My parents are not rude by any means, but don't seem to be aware of how stressful it can be for a significant other to be introduced to their partner's families. And therefore, they don't extend any special effort to make them feel welcome or include them in conversation. In anticipation of my boyfriend's visit next month, 
Can you provide some advice on how I can prime my parents to be kind and welcoming people that I know that they are? Also, do you have any suggestions for best practices for such events? Thanks for your advice. Sincerely, hoping for no tears. Oh, hoping for no tears. I'm hoping for no tears as well. No kidding, right? Such a tricky situation, or it can be such a tricky situation. Some uh, some people are blessed with parents that know how to make this uh, an easy and smooth moment. And <laughs> for some families, it's always going to be awkward. Families can be such closed um, environments. They can be their own ecosystem. And how to figure out how to integrate and become part of a family can be really tricky. Um, I think that you're thinking about how to prime your parents for this meeting is really phenomenal. I'm, I'm wondering if you're maybe a regular listener because we often talk about uh, priming people for potentially <laughs> difficult situations know, or, right? or tricky conversations. <laughs> and so I think your idea of priming your parents is a great one. And um, psychologically, a great way to start to engage someone, particularly around a difficult topic, is ask their permission, ask for their buy-in. Whatever you're about to say next, say, you know, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. Is now a good time? Instantly, yeah, now's an okay time to talk. You've got their buy-in. You've, you've prepared them to have the discussion. So that that's a little tactical advice. As far as what you say, in your question, you've identified the two things that I would talk to your parents about ahead of time, and that's about making a special and concerted effort to make the, who, the newcomer, whoever it is, feel welcome, and that concretely they can do that by making an effort to include them in conversation. And you can include someone in conversation a couple different ways. You can intentionally not have conversation. They're inside joke conversations or that, that wouldn't have enough information for someone else to follow or understand them. So if you just drop into a question about Aunt Sadie's Pomeranian and that's not a dog or a person that the newcomer knows, it's important that you include them in the conversation. You either don't have the detailed discussion of that or you give them enough information to participate Background. and engage. Yeah. So one thing is you don't have conversations that hold someone out and that can be really tough, particularly for a family. You haven't yeah. seen each other in a while. That's how you're used to talking. Really quickly, what are, because we talk about it all the time, it's basically tier one of our conversations. Just remind mm -hmm. our listener about what he or she could do that would be those topics that you could suggest to the parents. Absolutely. So then the, there's the positive things that you can talk about to include and engage this other person. Tier one, you can talk about anytime, anywhere with anybody, and that's sports mm -hmm. or um, a, a local celebrity or the weather or what you're doing, the event that you're participating in, the food that's being served, whether or not that's you like the one. restaurant. That's a great one. They can't not. Its decor or <laughs> how your day went, what, yeah. what the trip was like. These are all really safe topics of conversation. Tier one is great. And stick the other part one. of it, yeah, just stick to tier one. But the other part of it is um, encourage your parents to ask about this newcomer, this new significant other, because that's a subject they know. They can always talk about themselves. And when they're encouraged to to ask questions about it and then, you, I mean, it sounds like we're, we're literally going to have you coach your parents, but this may be something that you just have to remind them of that, you know, so when you ask her something or when you ask him something, you know, and they say this, then ask a little more or compare it to something in your life and it'll give them a chance to then mm -hmm. comment on you or something. And it'll it'll create the conversation that you're looking for, because I think sometimes parents can stall out when it comes to a newcomer to the family. Your family is an extremely tight knit place, even if you all don't get along. There's so much that you know about each other that when there's that fourth or fifth person at the table that doesn't know, it's so easy to do what Dan's talking about. Talk about things that the other person wouldn't know about. And the next thing you know, you have excluded them. And I love the concrete things you're giving our listener to do 
to prep the parents because the parents might not know. One other suggestion that I have is let's say you're you're having the dinner at home. Tell your parents, you know, invite him or her to come help you in the kitchen with something because sometimes doing an activity together, that can spur a little bit of conversation. And don't pick something that you know they're really controlling over. If mom doesn't let anyone help out in the kitchen, that's probably not the best thing to do, you know. And I'd say conversely, flip the whole scenario on its head, and I'm sure you've done this already, but in the same way you're going to prep the parents, prep your significant other for this particular encounter. Say, you know, my my parents have not always handled this the best in the past. In fact, last year I found myself upstairs with my brother's new girlfriend and she was in tears and I don't want to scare you. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, that's not to scare you away. My parents are normal. They just take time. They're sweet people. They're good people. Whatever it is that you really honestly feel about them, (laughs) feel free to share that. But prepare your, your significant other so that they're ready for the experience also. We really hope that helps and we're excited for you. This is a big step in a relationship or it can be a big step in a relationship. Hopefully it feels like a small step and that everything goes smoothly. (laughs) And there are no tears. (laughs) Our next question is titled, No Thank You Really Means No Thank You. Hi, Lizzie and Daniel. Thank you so much for your podcast. I enjoy listening on my daily runs. Yay, another runner. My question is how to say no politely to the mother of my fiancé. She and I have become close over the last two years, yet I can't find a way to tell her no without being backed into a corner and behaving in a way that I'm often not proud of. (laughs) These scenarios range from things as unimportant as pie after dinner to the dress I'll wear at my wedding. If I refuse a piece of pie saying, no, thank you, it looks amazing, but I'm so full from your wonderful dinner, she'll fire 20 questions at me about why I suddenly don't like pie. In those cases, I just give up and eat despite my discomfort. Now, I'm having trouble saying no to her offer of lending me her wedding dress. It was handmade in 1977 by my fiancé's Hungarian refugee grandmother with a high neck, long Victorian button sleeves, and an extra long train. She is four inches shorter than me and at the time of her wedding was slimmer than my athletic build. Also, we're having a semi-casual afternoon wedding on their farm under the full June sun. I've sincerely thanked her for her offer, explained that it doesn't fit, explained that it's worth more as an intact family heirloom, explained that it would be too hot, get ruined, etc. Yet she continues to brush me off and say, you'll change your mind. The short answer that I'm afraid she'll push out of me is that a yellowed, very formal dress from the 70s is not my style at all. Please help. I don't want to ruin this relationship. We see them often and we'll have long lives together. Thank you, Jennifer. Oh, Jennifer, I feel for you. Although I probably would not have as easy a time resisting the pie. (laughs) But, um, you know, no thank you. This is one where I'm just going to tell you, you are just going to have to say it over and over and over again. And do not do not let her push you down because this is your wedding dress. Um, And she can she can make as many comments of you'll change your mind or, oh, you know, it'll be a mistake if you wear something. She might say things that are downright psychologically damaging about it. (laughs) But I am going to tell you to keep a a nice smile on your face and just say, oh, you know, I I totally understand all that. Or, you know, maybe I will. But no, thank you right now. I, I really love the dress I have. I love the dresses I've been looking at. I'm excited to wear the dresses I've been looking at. Again, you are so of the right mind frame that you do not want to tell her that the dress is 
not your style. Not actually, you can say it's you know it it doesn't really feel like it's me. But even that, you don't have to go there. You can just simply keep saying it's so lovely of you to offer, but I'm really okay. Thank you. So lovely of you to offer, but I'm I'm all set with the dress I've chosen. Or and pivot, pivot, pivot yeah. to the dresses that you're looking at. Yeah. I mean, be ready with the no, yeah. and then also be ready with the. And I'm saying yes to this, 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 and this, or this is my process, or this is so yeah. you engage and include. When it comes to weddings, the biggest advice that all all of us at Emily Post give is love every idea for five minutes, or in some cases, <laughs> thirty seconds. Um, but say, oh wow, isn't that beautiful? You know, thanks so much for sharing that with me. Oh, you know, I'm going to take that into consideration. You can keep telling her, you know, I'll keep thinking about it. I'll keep thinking about it. And when she says, you'll change your mind, you said, you know, maybe I'll surprise myself and I will. But right now, I'm good where I'm at. Thanks. Just stay strong, Jennifer. Stay strong. <laughs> can, can you hear this is coming from someone who has a vision for her wedding? Yeah, <laughs> and right? Then... I want her to have the wedding she wants. <laughs> so I want to expand our answer just a little bit and look at – because I, I really hear it in the, the very end of your question – we see them often and we'll have long lives together. And I love that you're recognizing that. You're you're really understanding the totality of this relationship yeah. and that this is a mother-in-law. This is a very important relationship. So know where you can say no and stick to it and do that. But maybe have a strategy that involves choosing your battles. Maybe the no thank you portion is, is something we talk about in our kids program that when someone offers you something at the table, you usually accept something that's been served to you. And yeah. so the dessert at the end of a meal – Maybe you don't want pie. Maybe you take the no thank you portion. You know, I can barely fit anything in Tiny right now. Slice. Cut me the tiniest slice you can imagine. No ice cream, please. And then you can have a bite. You've One tried bite. it. You don't need to finish it. But maybe that's a place where you're gonna you're gonna see the territory. You're yes. gonna you're gonna take a, a a little small defeat and and yeah. retreat, and you're gonna win the larger campaign, the larger battle. Dan's right. And in the long term, you're gonna have a good relationship with your mother-in-law, who clearly is a, a figure of some force. It's <laughs> it's such great advice. Do the things you can do with her, but hold your ground on the things that are very important to you. I know people who have worn wedding dresses that they aren't happy with on their wedding day, and it's something that stays with them for a very long time. So only seed territory that you feel comfortable seeding, you know, um, the dress. Do not ever feel you have to give up on that keep saying no thank you but thanks so much for the offer and congratulations on your coming wedding have Have a great great day (laughs) you hear that she says you're not as rude as you used to be what do you know thanks to everyone for sending in your questions and remember we love updates so if we answered your questions on the show or if you have a comment about one of our questions feel free to send it in you can also submit your question to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave a message for us on our answering machine at 802-860-0860. Or you can also send it in via Facebook or Twitter. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want it on the show. You have a good postscript segment for us this week. I do. I'm looking forward to this postscript. Lizzie, who writes a column for Women's Running Magazine, uh, that's a QA and a column very similar to this podcast, had the idea to do a postscript on yoga class etiquette. I thought it was a brilliant idea because it's definitely a – 
a topic that comes and goes as yoga comes and goes from fashion, but it's always a good thing to know about. Yeah, because... but, the, but the, no, the important part is that you are really, you're really, like, yoga's been a part of your life for a really long time. It's true. And it's funny that, that you say it reason. that way. No, because I remember <laughs> when I first started doing yoga that these people who had been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, seemed like they knew so much. They've been doing this forever. And um, I'm definitely that person now who's been doing yoga for, for 15 plus years. Yeah. I was teaching yoga in my early 20s. Um, and now I'm just a dedicated amateur. I love getting to class, but I also <laughs> love giving myself a class on the deck. So speaking um, of classes. So really oftentimes when we think about yoga, we think about yoga class etiquette. And there are a few things that we can talk about that are really concrete, that are easy to talk about. And I just want to, to cover them, get them out of the way, and then we'll talk <laughs> about some other things also. One is your phone. <laughs> it's so obvious, but if we were to give a yoga etiquette checklist, the first thing would be go ahead and silence that phone. Silence it before you even get in the building, please. Um, what about vibrate feature? No? Uh, it, if you silent, must, silent, I off, like silent, it silent. It, okay. In the classroom space, nothing. Off. Yeah. Powered down. Um, in the, the the changing room right outside, maybe get away with it. But, but really, you hear that outside the room. You hear it going off. And you, you don't want to be that person. You really don't. And here's the little bonus points. Here's the etiquette um, A-plus student answer. Don't even take your phone out of your pocket till you've left the building. It's one of those little things that I notice when you walk out of a class and everyone's been so good. They've spent an entire hour of their lives without checking messages or text. And it, it seems like it's absolutely critical to get that phone in your hand within a minute of getting out of the classroom. And I think to myself, you know, it used to be that I'd leave class and there'd be this moment of interaction where we're all in this shared space, having just shared this experience together and – um, that the, the social element of a good yoga class can be so pleasant and enjoyable. And I just want to advise people or give you the, the encouragement to try to enjoy that social space without a phone in your hand if you can. The other uh, sort of obvious thing to bring up right off the bat is dress. The most important etiquette rule for dress in a yoga class is to be clean and neat, to make an effort to come to class with good personal hygiene so that you don't smell. And that's body odor. That's breath. That's also uh, perfumes and colognes. Um, a lot of time people will particularly notice the sort of more expensive perfumes and colognes and dislike them. But that also goes for natural products that have their own scents. And um, whether it's patchouli or Chanel number no. 5. Patchouli is pretty popular in the Burlington area. The, 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 the person next to you in class <laughs> yeah. might not be as big a fan of that scent. And you might be surprised what your body heat does to activate a scent that you've been wearing. Um, you remove shoes. Before you enter most yoga studios, I think it's wise to keep an eye on that. The other thing is that despite the impression that, that people don't wear anything to a yoga class, there's actually a real courtesy about being discreet and staying covered in class. That you're going to be doing poses that oftentimes are inversions or twists or have your body in orientations that they're not usual – might not be in in your day-to-day -day life. <laughs> So even if yoga pants feel <laughs> revealing, they're oftentimes tight and form-fitting, but they're also covering everything. Yes. So the advice is often to be careful about loose clothes or clothes that might be okay for a workout session in the gym where you're lifting weights might not provide you the same kind of coverage when you're doing down dog in your yoga class. One I think of is I tried a few Bikram classes where you're usually stripped down to very little. I mean, like I, in our classes, it was very common for women to just wear a sports bra and 
pretty much the the shortest yoga shorts you could find. But a lot of gentlemen who weren't wearing the tight, like you're talking about shorts, would wear kind of loose, more basketball-styled shorts or, or longer athletic shorts. And they would really make an effort to wear a tight pair of shorts underneath so that when they did even just a simple downward dog or something like that, you didn't see up the short. <laughs> that, that flowing loose article of clothing that you love and really actually helps you um, move in a way that also feels similarly free and uninhibited, that's a great tip, a great piece of advice to wear something that's going to show proper modesty underneath. Um, I want to talk about time a little bit. It's really important to be on time. Everyone knows that. That's one of the classic pieces of etiquette advice. I I like to give the A-plus advice. Try being a little early. (laughs) Try being in class a little bit ahead of time so you're not bringing that energy of rush and hurry into the classroom space. can be really nice just to be there early enough to set up your equipment ahead of time. If you're new to a studio, allow extra time. Allow time to pay for your classes. Usually expect that you pay for a class before you take it. Be prepared for that. Leave time for it. Also prepare yourself to learn the, the usual practices of a new studio. If it's a place that you recognize, you know that from your car to the mat is five minutes. You can show up seven minutes minutes ahead, be on your mat with two minutes to go, ready for the opening posture or ohm. At the same time, to the new studio, give yourself 10, 15 minutes. I also want to talk about the attitude that you bring to class. People really appreciate that you bring a smile, that you're willing to leave a negative attitude or (laughs) salacious gossip behind. Really try to carve out a space for a positive social experience as well as a positive physical experience. If you're new to a studio, I was talking about this with time, watch others to try to figure out what the class norms are. Some classes, people talk more. There's more of an engagement with the teacher. People ask questions, the teacher responds. Other classes really happen more in silence. Some classes, people have very active, loud breath throughout the class. It's encouraged by the teacher. It's a feature that people know they want to come, they want to experience that, they want a place where they're free to grunt and exhale as loudly as they want. Other classes, that would be viewed as distracting and rude. So definitely, if you're new to a class or studio, watch for the social environment and atmosphere of the class, as well as what the customs and practices are as far as entering and leaving the space. You could also always ask the instructor if you do that wonderful thing Dan talked about by showing up early. Say, hey, I just wanted to check what are some of the norms? Breath, clothing, this, that. Mm-hmm. And a good teacher is going to give you cues. Yeah. A good teacher is going to ask for questions from the class. If someone's asking repeated questions, they'll say, you know, I'm, I'd love to talk with you about that after class, but I'm going to hold it for now. Go slow. <laughs> um, definitely give yourself time. Be careful with yourself both socially and physically. Just a, a quick remark because it came up in last week's show that your yoga class is not a dating site. It's usually mm-hmm. frowned upon for that to be a place where you're going to meet people explicitly to book dates or ask people out. Oh, uh, really, Dan? A yoga studio can be an incredible social scene. Oh, you really, might Dan? even meet your future wife at a yoga class. <laughs> I'm just saying. Um That was great. At the same time, your ability to navigate meeting your future wife at a yoga class might depend on your ability to not come across as a complete lech because you're asking out everybody in class. Lizzie's laughing at me because I met Pooja at a yoga class that she was teaching. Um, And and I'll share just a a little bit of very personal information here, which is that one of the things that so impressed me about Pooja and was one of the things that let me know that 
there was a, a chance for us moving forward. One of those early indications in the relationship was an email that I got from her after I'd been going to her class for a couple of weeks where she asked me to stop coming to her class so that we could go out sometime. And I really, really appreciated the seriousness that she took her teaching and the classroom environment that she was really working to create. And at the time, it gave me an indication that she took me seriously also in the relationship or as a potential partner. So a yoga studio can be a remarkable social scene. It can be a great place to meet people. But I would give the general advice that it's not a great place to ask people out. I'd like to finish up my yoga advice with a few tips about how to end a class. Um, you definitely want to clean up after yourself. If you sweat it all over everything, you can grab a towel or ask somebody where there's a bathroom, you grab a towel. Believe it or not, even wiping down the floor or a yoga mat that you've used that's class material is very similar to wiping down the gym equipment at yep. the gym after you're done using it. There's usually some kind of spray. Watch other people for what they do, where they put away props and any common courtesies at the end of class. Oftentimes, class will end with uh, namaste. People saying, essentially, I acknowledge you, I bow to you. If you're not comfortable saying namaste, you can always say thank you. And in the same way you would thank a host before you would leave a party, it's a good idea to thank your teacher before you leave the class. Just catch their eye, a quick thanks for class. Great way to walk out the door, whether you ever plan to come back or not. I could keep talking about this all day. <laughs> I hope I see you in class someday. And I hope this helps if yoga is a new experience for you. Maybe it'll help you get out there and give it a try. If you're an old fan, maybe this gives you a little food for thought. Our etiquette salute today comes all the way from Norway. Dear Lizzie and Daniel, I would like to share with you and your listeners my favorite new tradition. I'm a student in Trondheim, Norway, and I'm involved in a rather big student organization. At the end of each semester, we have a party where we enjoy each other's company and try not to think about the upcoming exams too much. At this party, everyone receives a letter filled with compliments. The letters are made through a website where everyone in the organization can write anonymous compliments to anyone else. The lack of signatures allows people to be more heartfelt and audacious with their compliments than they would dare be otherwise. The compliments can vary in length, depth, and intimacy. Some might be a paragraph about how much you matter as a friend or are an inspirational coworker. Others can be a few lines of inside jokes or personal anecdotes, and some are just one line complimenting your looks, attitude, or personality. It is always the most wonderful, loving atmosphere when people receive and read their letters. And whenever I have a bad day, an old compliment letter will always pick me up and remind me of all the wonderful people I have been lucky enough to surround myself with. I hope that with this salute, I might inspire someone on the other side of the world to adopt this tradition that a class, club, workplace, or family somewhere else might start giving each other loving, anonymous compliments. And I thank you for the opportunity to do so. Much love, Bor Resta. I love that. I think that's a great tradition. I also just want to say that when Bor wrote to us, she um, also included a paragraph about how she loves when we talk about thank you notes because they're actually not a tradition where she's from. It's not something that's the norm. Um, occasionally, they'll send out something that's kind of a cross between a thank you and what we would send as an announcement at the at a, at a time of, of great celebration in your life, like a wedding or um, a confirmation or graduation 
graduation or something like that. And uh, she sent some examples of what those look like. And it's usually a picture of, of the person and then um, like a, a big like thank you in celebration of or something or thank you for celebrating me at this point and, and the date. You know, that sort of a thing. And it was kind of cool to see another culture um, do that. But she said that grandparents and and parents, the, the past generation she talks to, don't say that thank you notes for gifts and things like that happen. They're just not something that's a part of that culture. So she loves hearing about this thank you note tradition, and she hopes that she'll receive some thank you notes or write some someday. Aww. I know. I thought it was really cool. So we love it when when you share with us. We love it when you tell us about what your culture does or what what we do here in America that maybe you don't have over in your country and, and what you think of those customs. Well, now, wasn't that better? Look at the effect of a little politeness. Well, that's our show for today. As always, thank you for listening and spending some of your day with us. We hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. And don't forget, there's no show without you. So send us your questions, your etiquette salute, and your suggestions to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also call our phone number at 802-866-0860 and leave us a message. If you like what you hear, don't be shy. Please tweet it, Facebook post it, and of course you can subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app and leave us a review. On Facebook, we're the Emily Post Institute. We are also Awesome Etiquette on Facebook. And on Twitter, I'm at Lizzie A. Post. And I'm at Daniel underscore Post. Or you can visit our website, emilypost.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Bob Wagner. Our show is produced by Alaskan mountain man Hans Buteau. 